0: sleep great breakfast (laughs) you know um, this uh this hymn we just sang is one of my favorites it's a hymn written by a good methodist charles wesley and there you go i got an amen out of that one and the fascinating thing about this hymn we don't know exactly when it was written but most uh hymnologists think that charles wesley wrote this hymn on his way back from america on one of his trips to evangelize the natives in georgia which were a pretty tough crowd as any of you from georgia by the way mississippi used to be west georgia in case you're wondering uh pretty rough crowd all these former prisoners uh, in england being dumped off in georgia they had to be evangelized anyway charles wesley did that and he uh Spent the earlier part part of his life uh, uh, at Oxford, if I remember correctly, and he was in the Oxford Holy Club. He and his brother John and George Whitfield and some others, they would get up early in the morning, like 4 o'clock in the morning, a little earlier than we do, to have their devotions, and then they would go visit the prisons. In those days, visiting prisons was very important. It's very important today, as a matter of fact, but it was even more important then physically because people didn't have food unless their family brought it to them. So uh, they would visit the prisons, they would evangelize the prisoners, and they would make vows and commitments to one another that they would lead a holy life. Charles Wesley then, of course, became an evangelist, evangelized in uh, Great Britain, and then came over here uh, to evangelize on a number of occasions. And after all of that, Wesley came to realize that he had not received Christ through the gospel. Can you believe that? Here's a guy who through his student years was far more serious than most of our Christian students who were involved in campus ministries. These guys were getting up before the sun got up. They were praying together, reading the Bible together. They were ministering in the prisons. He had been a missionary, a foreign missionary. He came to realize that he had received Christ. And he had built his entire religious experience on his attempt to do what the Bible said a man should do. And the Bible says we should pray and we should read the Bible. And the Bible says that we should visit those in prison. The Bible says that we should go into all the world. And so he was living a religious life based on what he believed the Bible said a man should do. Now, in one sense, there's nothing wrong with that. But there's something wrong with it if you get to the end of your life and you realize all your efforts are not sufficient to get you where you want to go, namely heaven. And on one of his trips back, apparently, Wesley became very clear to him that the grounds for his own justification, his own standing with God in his mind had been what he had been doing. And he realized that was contrary to the gospel. After all those years of hard labor in the kingdom, he had been laboring as a slave instead of as a son. And that night he received Jesus Christ and Jesus' righteousness alone for his acceptance before God. And when he did that, he had such a phenomenal experience of release. Like being delivered from a prison. He'd gone from a secular prison to a Christian prison. And he was released from the prison. That's that's the reason he said, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke and the dungeon, the dungeon I was living in, was was flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. After he'd been serving the Lord in one sense for years. That can happen to men. Very serious men. Very intelligent men. Very committed men. It can happen to them. They can be engaged in the work of the kingdom like it's a prison. A dungeon. And they know they have a burden, but they don't quite know what the burden is. Until one day they meet Jesus in a way they've never met him before. Now, I want to suggest to you that was exactly the mentality of the disciples with Jesus. They couldn't get what he was talking about because they couldn't get this radical paradigm shift that Charles Wesley didn't get for years. Finally, they're going to get it, but they hadn't gotten it yet by the time we're in Mark seven. And one way in which we see it is that that there's one group that not only doesn't get it, but they hate what Jesus is teaching. They think that what Jesus is teaching is undermining the work of God and undermining the prospects for His church. They believe that when Jesus teaches a kingdom of grace, that He is going to undermine the whole system of morality and the whole system of salvation for the Jews. And so they hate him. They're called the Pharisees. The Pharisees were very religious people. They were Charles Wesley's with a sword in their hand. (laughs) They were were out after Jesus. And we're going to see how the lack of understanding of the disciples is revealed when these Pharisees oppose Jesus and the disciples don't understand what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. So in, in one sense, theologically, the disciples are right where the Pharisees are. And I want to suggest to you. That most men in the church, I'm not talking about those of you who are outside the church. Okay, I'll talk about you in just a minute. But those of you who are inside the church, most of us don't understand the radical nature of Jesus' teaching. And I want us to, to pick up on that this morning as we look at Mark 7. And uh, I'm going to just read the first 23 verses because there are three major stories here that all tie together, as we'll see in a moment. But uh, this first story really ties together. It's one scene in the play, if you will. And let's look at this first scene from Mark 7, verse 1 through verse 23. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed, He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Corban. That is a gift devoted to God. Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull?" he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Okay, let us look at this first section and see that our view of cleanness, if you'll accept that word, affects our relationship with God. Your view of cleanness will definitely affect the way that you relate to God. Now, first of all, in these first eight verses, I want us to notice that a commitment to religious traditions can distort our relationship with God. Because in many ways, we will think of our religious traditions and abiding by those traditions as providing for us. Our acceptance, we accept ourselves sometimes this way. The more we conform to certain traditions or certain rules that we make up, we feel better about ourselves. And therefore, we assuage our guilt. And we'll get to that a little bit later. But commitment to these religious traditions, oddly enough, can distort our relationship with God. And I see it all the time in the church. We all have our traditions. Those of you from Mainline or uh, more liberal Protestant traditions, you have your traditions. Those of you from the more conservative realm, you have your traditions. If you're in the Catholic or Orthodox Church, you have your traditions. If you're Jewish, you have your traditions. And believe it or not, if you're not in a church at all, you've got your religious traditions. They're called rabbit foots and four-leaf clovers and things like that. Everybody's got their sort of traditions or things that they abide by that conform with their religious affections. So sometimes we're going to find that our commitment to these things distorts our relationship with God. Now, notice, first of all, in verses one and two, we can become quite expert on our traditions. The Pharisees had come down from Jerusalem. They came down from the very center of the religious uh, community. They came down from Jerusalem. These people were experts. Uh, they could write books on what is a true Baptist. What is a real Presbyterian? What does a Methodist really believe? Now they could write all the traditional things about Judaism. And they would continue to add to the tradition. Here's how it happens. In the Jewish religion, you have the Torah. The uh, Old Testament. Uh, which is considered the written tradition. The written Word of God. But you also had what is known as the oral tradition. And it was passed down verbally. There were some who were writing these things down, as we'll discuss in a moment, but it was generally handed down from rabbi to rabbi. And the reason that the, the Jewish people saw the necessity for the oral tradition was that the written tradition was written in 1200, 1300 B.C. by Moses. They were living in another generation more than a millennium later. They had been exiled. How do you keep the rules of the temple when you don't have a temple? How do you keep the rules of the Holy Land when you don't have a land? You're in exile. So they would they would interpret, which is what we do today. In some senses, we interpret the meaning of the Old Testament, breathing it into our own age. And that's what the oral tradition was intended to do. And then when they come back to the Holy Land, once again, they're invaded by the Greeks in the second century B.C. Once again, their temple is violated. And so there's more writing about what do you do when you do live in the Holy Land, but you're, there's been an abomination in your own temple by the Greeks. How do you live life? What do you do? And then there were all kinds of things that were coming as a result of their own age. Different types of foods or different types of customs or different types of uh, societal pressures. And how do you respond to those? And the rabbis would get, give answers. Anytime a rabbi gave an answer that was new, it became part of the oral tradition. So, for example, when computers hit and you want to know, well, what do we do about uh, invitations to pornographic uh, sites on my website? Do I do I just click them off or do I put a filter on or what do I do? How do I? Well, the rabbi would give you teaching. We got computers. We've never had that before. We're going to give you teaching. And then there would be a mishnah. There'd be a tract, a chapter that would be collected On these teachings about how to handle a computer ethically. Things like that. So as society changed, the rabbis would continue to teach. And their teachings were compiled in this oral tradition. Now here's where things went bad. In Jesus' opinion. Where it went bad was they... Took the oral teachings that were meant to apply the Word of God in their own day, and they elevated the oral teachings, their traditions, to be equal to the written scriptures. So there were two infallible sources of information in the Jewish mind. There was the written Bible that we have before us, the written tradition, and the oral tradition, but the oral tradition was elevated. And they became quite expert on their oral tradition. Now, another thing the oral tradition did was if if you were told uh, not to labor on the Sabbath day. But you weren't told exactly what you could and couldn't do. The rabbis would tell you not to do a whole lot of things to be sure you didn't violate the fourth commandment. So if the fourth commandment is here. And written in sort of constitutional general terms, the Pharisees and and the the rabbis would put the boundaries way out here to be sure you never violated this. So they push the boundaries out and they would then teach their children these laws out here. As you know, there's 619 of them and you, you should know all those laws and abide by them. Well, this is the way the rabbis functioned and their oral tradition then actually became just as significant as the Bible itself. And it's true today. The Jewish Talmud is simply a collection beginning in the 2nd century A.D. of the oral traditions that went back for four or 500 years. And they still abide by the Talmud. And the Talmud is as authoritative as the Old Testament Scriptures. This is the no-no. This is where you get into trouble. We're going to see that Jesus takes this head-on. So he attacks the Talmud. Today's Talmud, because it's a collection of the ancient oral tradition, plus some other things that were added since then. And that's where the Pharisees would get into trouble. But they were quite expert on it. And when we create our traditions, we can get quite expert about them all. It's amazing to me how we can focus on minor things in our denominations because they distinguish us. They make us different. We have that label and we want to be sure that we know quite well what makes us better than everybody else. And so we can articulate all those arguments for everything that makes us different. And sometimes we focus on the things that make us different rather than this huge thing in the middle that makes us the same. That is, brothers with one another and sons of the living God. Why do we do this? Well, we'll get into it in a little bit. The Pharisees did the same thing. They became quite expert on their own traditions. There, our traditions go beyond the Scriptures, as I've already said. They would take uh, scriptural revelation and they would push it out and apply it in broader ways than the Bible even intended. It says here they, that they said uh, they do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing. Now, why do I say this going beyond the scriptures? Here's why. If you look in uh, Exodus chapter 30 or Exodus chapter 40, you'll find examples. You don't have to turn there, but you'll find examples of these teachings of washings. Who were the washings for? For the priests before they go into the tabernacle. Here's what the scribes and Pharisees did. They said, "Okay, if we're really serious about our religion, we're going to believe in the priesthood of all believers. (laughs) So if the priests are to wash their hands before they go into the tabernacle and wash their feet, we'll wash our hands before we pray and before we eat. So we'll just say the all of Israel is going to keep the same standards as the priests themselves. The Bible didn't say that the Bible gave ceremonial washings because it gave a ceremonial priesthood to offer sacrifices that would show forth the coming of the one who would eventually lay his life down as a sacrifice for us. But the Pharisees took it wanting to be very zealous and apply it to everybody. It's kind of like if if you look at the whole idea of fasting and in the Bible, uh, it fasting is commended for us when when we believe we should fast. Well, how often? What's amazing, some people who are really into fasting think everybody should fast about once a week. If you look in the Bible in the Old Testament, they fasted once a year. the day of atonement. And so we can take things that are offered to us as gifts. Fasting is a gift because you, you leave your food in order to go after Jesus Christ in a more radical and zealous way. It's a gift to fast. But then we use it as a weapon to judge everybody else who's not fasting. And we create our own ideas about fasting. That everybody should be doing this, and quite often. Where'd you get that? You didn't get it from the Bible. You made it up. And we can be very, very rigorous about these things. So they were expert on their traditions. Their traditions would take them beyond the Scriptures. And then our traditions become more important than the Scriptures. You know, it begins with having our, our traditions be a useful teaching tool to us. Like, for example, you find in the back, back of your study Bibles all kinds of, of uh, Protestant Uh, statements of faith. Well, for the Protestants, those are very valuable teaching tools. And and then the next thing you know, people are memorizing that as much as they're memorizing the Bible. And then before you know it, every time somebody judges a doctrine, they'll see if it conforms to the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 13, rather than looking to see if it conforms to the Bible. So before you know it, we'll ditch the Bible that we've already been given the Westminster Confession of Faith, so we'll just ditch the Bible. We've got the summary of the Bible right here, and we'll just judge everything by the By the confession, you see how subtle it is and how progressive it is. So pretty soon that's what happens with our traditions, unless we really deal with our hearts, as we shall see. Now, Jesus uh, is not uh, he is not dissing the idea of these ritual cleansings and uh, because it's part of the word of God, Uh, of course, eventually. Uh, the dietary laws, as Mark makes a point here to say to his Roman audience, uh, in, in Jesus' teaching, all foods were made clean. So we no longer have clean and unclean foods. Pork is now allowed, so to speak, which would have been outrageous to the Jewish mind. Now, that's true, but it's not as though Jesus was saying there was no need to abide by this in the Old Testament because all of it pointed to the holiness that will come to us through the Messiah, And so we go through ritual cleansing or ritual separation in order to get our hearts prepared to long for the real separation that the Messiah gives us from sin itself. And he does this. He accomplishes this real cleanness for us. So all this ritual was simply to get our hearts ready to receive the real thing. They were shadows of the real thing that was to come. They were types of the antitype, Jesus Christ himself. So Jesus was not... Uh, dissing the Old Testament ritual laws, and the Jews held these things very valuably. You remember, some of you may remember that uh, in the time of the Maccabees, when they were being wiped out by the Romans, they were they were told to eat pork, and they refused to do it, and they were martyred for refusing to break the dietary laws. I mean, the Jews held these things very, very dearly. The Pharisees believed. By keeping all the ritual laws, they were displaying the sovereignty of God, which would encourage him to come and restore Israel's fortunes. So that they saw this as a communal, patriotic act. So it was not just religion. It was patriotism, too, that we abide by these rules because we believe this will please the Lord and he will come back and restore Israel. So all of this had gotten worked into their minds. It's amazing what can happen to you in church. You can begin to believe That this whole thing is a set of rules that will make us good patriots, make us good boys, so that we can get good jobs and be good citizens. And frankly, that's what I thought it was all about until I was 25 years old. And I know that some of you have been thinking that. That's exactly what the Pharisees thought. And let's give them credit. They at least took their religion seriously. And let's give them credit. They worked hard to understand it. They studied hard. They made good grades. Let's give them credit. When they had a question, they left their ivory towers and they went to Galilee and they didn't start complaining and bitching and moaning to the disciples. They went straight to the leader himself. Let's give them credit for that. And let's give them credit. When they went straight to the leader, they didn't criticize him before they asked a few questions. These people are not idiots. They're not stupid. They're a whole lot like the best of us. They believed in excellence, they believed in doing things right. They believed in diplomacy and you see it in them. These are smart people. They're very serious people and they're just like some of us. But they took they misunderstood the very heart of what they were doing in their religious lives. So they not only uh, went beyond the scriptures, but they did this a lot. Mark says, and they observed many other traditions. And I could give you some stories. Let me just give you one in the Talmud today. If you go and read about what kind of work you can do on the Sabbath, you'll find all kinds of regulations about what you can do and what you can't do. Someone once asked the rabbi, is it work to pick your nose? I'm serious. And there were no answers. So the rabbi had to give an answer. And this has been added to the oral tradition. You want to know the answer? Can you pick your nose on the Sabbath? The answer is no, not because it's gross. That's not the problem. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. The rabbi explained it. I'm dead serious now. The rabbi explained it. If you pick your nose, you might end up working because you could pull a hair out. I'm serious. That's the answer. Now, this is the kind Now obviously most of the rules don't, don't get to that level of absurdity. But you see where it can go. Once you try to give an answer for every single thing, you're into absurdity. Then you make a rule and then. If you put that finger in your nose on a, son, on a Saturday, you're in trouble. And everybody's going to judge you for putting your finger in your nose on Saturday. And people forget even why it is that it may be that you pull out a hair because that's work, lifting a hair on the Sabbath. Uh, and people forget about the Sabbath, and then they forget about the Lord in whom we're supposed to be resting on the Sabbath. They forget about all that. All they notice is you put your finger in your nose. Christians do the same thing. It's just amazing. amazing. And there are different ways in which we do this. I want to try to describe it in just a moment. But we do many of these sorts of things. It gets worse. And then fifthly, uh, you'll notice in verse five, we insist that everyone else conform to our traditions. They come and they say to Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? So when you begin to think of your religion based on your performance, your next move is to begin to judge everybody else based on their performance. That's your next move. It's coming. It's guaranteed. You're going to judge everybody else on the basis of their performance. You're actually, at the, it, when, you, when you take it to the full extreme, you will judge their relationship with God based on their religious performance. That's what you're going to do. Why? Because you're doing it to yourself. And you're going to judge everybody else the way you're treating yourself. That's what Charles Wesley was doing. Before God nabbed him, everybody knew Charles Wesley was a Christian. Everybody was wrong. Charles Wesley was wrong. Charles Wesley found that out later because he had based everything in his life on his own performance. And he he had to learn to cease doing that. So we insist that everyone else conform to our traditions. That's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. And then sixthly, our religious traditions become hypocritical. And if you look in verse 6, this is when Jesus then gives his answer. And he shows what the real problem with this is. It's play acting. That's what hypocrisy means. Hypocrisy is insincerity. But literally, hypocrisy means you, you wear a mask. Actors were hypocrites. They were actors. And in those days when you acted, you put a mask, a mask you held a mask in front of you, had either a big smile on it or a frown on it or a scowl on it. And that mask would show forth the character of the person you were playing. And that, that, that made you the hypocrite, the actor. So a hypocrite is one who has a mask, who's acting. And Jesus said, this is your real problem. You're masking the real issues in your life. And we'll see his other descriptions here. First of all, your, our lips are flapping. <laughs> he says, these people honor me with their lips. Yang, 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 yang. Some of them preach. Some of them teach Sunday school. Some of them evangelize. Charles Wesley was a great preacher. Yang, 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 yang. They talk a lot about religion. That's the first thing. But the second thing is our hearts are not in it. He says their hearts are far from me. He's quoting Isaiah here. He says Isaiah was talking about you. He wasn't talking about those people outside of church. He was talking about you, you guys right here in the middle in the seminary. You guys who are the preachers. He's talking about you in Isaiah. That you have a lot of talk, but your heart is separate from God. You don't love him. And what Wesley had to realize is that he hadn't received the love of God. He had received the commandments of God. He had received the orders from God. He was like a good soldier. He saluted. But he wasn't in love with God. So lots of talk, lots of religion, but his heart was not in it. He didn't have his affections attached to the Lord. And thirdly, our worship is empty it's vain it's empty worship should be glorious which means heavy kavod means glory in the hebrew it's just weight worship ought to have weight but your worship it's like a feather it's just empty there's nothing in it what a what a tragic description of people who would offer worship to the lord and fourthly our religion is actually a wicked substitute for real godliness he says you have Let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And notice, Jesus doesn't say you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of the elders. He just says traditions of men, which is making a point that rather than taking God's revealed religion, which is a matter of a heart relationship with him, You have created a man-made system of doctrines and system of traditions, and you've replaced the one with the other. This is the great irony of what so many people are doing who are involved in religion. The great irony is that for all their religious efforts, what they're actually doing is pushing out the real thing in order for them to play act the fake and phony thing. That's the irony of all this religious zeal. And of course, we expect it on CNN or MSNBC or anywhere else where people are comparing religions that one is just as sincere as the other. I don't think they're as sincere as the other. I think the Pharisees are probably a whole lot more sincere than I am, but they're just sincerely wrong. So sincerity or zeal does not define what is right and good and helpful and healthy. What defines that is God himself. And Jesus is coming to say, you've, you've replaced it. If you want to know how how zealously Jesus goes after the Talmud and tries to destroy it, all you have to do is turn to the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, he says over and over again, you have heard that it was said. And who's he talking about? Who said what? The rabbis. You have heard the oral tradition. You have heard that it was said That you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemy. You have heard from oral tradition that you should not commit adultery. And you have all these fine rules about what is adultery and what is not adultery. And of course, every man wants to know exactly what's allowed. And Jesus said, you've heard that said, but I'm telling you, here's what the the seventh commandment really taught. That if you look at a woman lustfully, you committed adultery in your heart. Thanks a lot, Jesus. Well, it just blew all my entertainment. You know, that's what that's what one Jew told me one time. That's the reason he hated Jesus because he, he he gave an impossible ethic. He said, "Of course, we we lust after women. It's entertainment." said, so we just don't do anything with it, and that's where the discipline comes in. And that's the difference between Jew uh, between Jesus and a rabbi. Jesus was saying. You have put this pharisaical crust, this legalistic, moralistic crust around the Bible and protected yourself from the real meaning of it. And you have created all your rules that justify your own existence and make you feel good about your little old self. But you've missed the main point, which is to be in touch with God himself, to be in communion with the creator of this universe. That's what you're missing out on because you're justifying yourself with your stupid little rules. He said, that's the irony of this zealous religion. Is that it zealously gets God out of the picture. Now, let's look at verses 9 through 13 and we'll see that this commitment to re- religious traditions can displace our commitment to God. He says you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. And he speaks of Korban. Now just briefly, Korban was the idea that I give my whole life and my entire estate to the Lord. It's meant to be used for his purposes. Well, that sounds good. Here's what the rabbis did to it. If you commit your life and estate to Korban, and it, that means eventually, upon death, guess who's going to get it? We clergy birds are going to get it. So then the rabbis created these laws that once you commit it to Korban and make that vow, even if your parents are dying of cancer and need your help, you can't give them any help out of your estate. Because you've already given it over to the Lord. And they had this system of vows and system of rules about what you do with Corban. Now, as it evolved, a man could pronounce his estate under Corban and he could do anything he wanted to it for himself. All it meant was that nobody else could get it. <laughs> it just became ridiculous. This is what happens When you leave real religion, start making up your own. Pretty soon it's going to all revolve right back around you like it did in the Garden of Eden. And that's what happened. And Jesus said, isn't this fine? You have the sixth commandment about honoring your parents. And you have a death warrant on anybody who curses his parents. You know what they did with disobedient children in the Old Testament? We didn't have disobedient children in the Old Testament. They were all six feet under. Why do you find that to be a good proposition? (laughs) Some of you wouldn't be here. (laughs) So Jesus says, here's the sixth commandment with a death penalty, a capital punishment attached to it. And you find interesting ways to get around the sixth commandment. He said, you see the power of your own moralism, what it's doing to to your relationship with God and even to the law of God. Now, in verses 14 through 23, then, we, we find the disciples confused as Jesus continues to teach. But Jesus teaches that religious traditions do not really address the hard issue, the real issue of cleanness. The deeper issue here is the source of defilement. How do we get defiled? And therefore, how are we going to undo the defilement? And this is what he wants to address. And he says in verse 14, basically says, Listen to me, everybody, and understand this. That's language that's common for Jesus when He's saying something that is clearly revelatory. Clearly a Word of God that is very important for the people. Listen to me, everybody, and understand this, He says to them. What does He say? He says in verse 15, Nothing outside of man can make him unclean by going into him. None of your dietary laws. None of your cleansing laws has anything to do with real cleanness. It's just a shadow pointing forward to the to the reality. It's just a type pointing forward to the real thing. None of it really makes us clean. And this is the reason that for those who are committed to their vegetarian diet, I mean, that's fine. I'm sure that keeping the carbs out or something is great. But if you're attaching that in any way to being kind to animals or being clean, ritually yourself, you're, you're right into a pharisaical law. Genesis 9 made the, the, the eating of animals uh, moral. So why you want to create something. Vegetarians, I know a lot of them when I talk to them, not, not necessarily any of you, but I've talked to vegetarians in this country, non-Christians, and they have all these theories, you know, and the Hindus, of course, have all their theories. And it's all pharisaism. It's just man-made laws to try to get themselves clean and innocent. And then secondly, cleanness does, not depend, d- does depend upon lifestyle. He says in verse 15, he says it doesn't have anything to do with, with your diet, but it, it does have something to do with what comes out of the man. So what comes out of your life makes you unclean. Now, the disciples get all confused. Uh, what's he saying? He said it doesn't matter what you eat. It matters what comes out. That's what, they're going, Jesus, is this, a, is this some profound teaching you've got for us today? Not what goes in, but what comes out? And Jesus said, hold on just a second. Your confusion is so massive, it's just hard for me to imagine. Uh, he says, look, it's not what, what comes out here. It's, what I'm trying to say, guys, is this, that all evil, all evil begins with the heart. It comes out this way. You see what I'm saying? It doesn't have anything to do with your stomach. It has to do with your heart. That's what he's saying. So out of your heart come your evil thoughts. So your heart, which provides your basic orientation in life, the basic things you have affection for will drive your mind. That's what's driving those evil thoughts. It comes out of here. So the mind is the window to your soul, but it is your soul that determines what you contemplate in your mind. So the heart determines your thoughts, and then what happens your thoughts determine your sexual immorality. That's what you get in the text and your lust and your greed and your unkindness and all your your words that you say and all your folly, all your foolishness. Everything you do comes from evil thoughts that are rooted back down in the heart. Now, Jesus is saying this is where religious people miss it. They're all thinking about image management. They're all thinking about how they're going to appear to be holy rather than how they're really going to receive cleanness that changes lives. And makes them more useful in the world. Now, if this is the case, could I just make a couple of suggestions or maybe three suggestions about how to deal with your heart? If this is the issue for cleanness, if this is where the real action is, then how do we do it? Well, let's begin with this. True confession. Not to everybody. I'm not going to confess this morning before this group this big with whom I don't have close relations my deepest sins. That would be inappropriate. It wouldn't be edifying to you. wouldn't be helpful to you. It wouldn't be helpful to me. It would just be scandalous. <laughs> so, but I, do I have anybody where I can talk about the deepest disappointments and failures in my own life? Can I come clean? Secondly, the only way you can do this is with the gospel. I cannot admit my errant thoughts, my evil thoughts that come from a wicked heart. I can't admit that unless I know there's a solution for it. And that is that I'm forgiven for all my evil thoughts. I'm not condemned for it. There's no condemnation for my evil thoughts. I am sorry for my evil thoughts, but I'm not condemned for them. It's the gospel. And so the only way in which I can go down deep is to go down with the gospel of Christ's love in my, in my heart. As I go down into my heart to see how... Wicked, my fleshly heart really is. But first of all, there's got to be an honest confession of uncleanness in my natural self. Secondly, there's got to be the gospel, that is, that Christ died for me and took away my sins. Christ lived a perfect life and gives me a perfect record. Before God, no matter what you think, here's what God thinks: I'm innocent. And I contemplate that reality. It's a reality. Based on full knowledge of my heart, God says he's innocent. Not because he's perfect, but because my son died for him and my son lived for him and earned for him a perfect record. And I've given him that record. That's the gospel. So I have that confidence as I go into my heart. Thirdly, you have to stay in conversation about your heart. Just recently, I was visiting with one of you who is seeking to get to some of the issues in your own heart. And if we talked about how to do this, we basically, both of us, we both happen to be Protestants. We both admitted that Catholics do a better job of actually confessing. Protestants don't agree with everything the Catholics do in the way they uh, confess. But Protestants basically don't confess at all. And sometimes it is because uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, you have an office. The clergy have an office where confessions are received as part of their office. We don't have an office set apart for that, so therefore nobody does it, not even the preachers. And there's something missing, if I can speak to the Protestants for just a minute, there's something missing often in our religious lives. We don't know how to open the heart and reveal what we're really dealing with. How many times have you been to those pornographic websites? How many times have you actually said something ugly to your wife? How many times have you really cheated on your income tax? How many times have you done these things that are shameful to you and you just hide them, you just cover them over and you you make a general confession. Those of us in, in this church, we confess our sins usually with a written confession that we all say together and it's nice and safe because it's very generic and everybody else is saying it too. So nobody suspects me as being any worse than anybody else. So it, I'm not I'm not dissing it. It's an important thing for us as a congregation to confess our sins. But, but there's no real dealing with my heart and my specific ugliness. And often we have no venue to do that at all. I'm not sure I have the answer except to say if you have a friend who is godly, with whom you could share your heart. You have a rare gift. And at least, I want to say to us, we must keep the conversation alive with the Lord Himself. And talk to Him about your own sorrow, about the real things that you said and thought and did, so that you're continually casting your burdens upon Him. I think this is the way to get to the heart. Admit your need, only go with the gospel. And stay in conversation about it, because that's the way you're going to cultivate this clean heart. Well, let's get to the next section. Uh, we just have a few minutes. I'm going to read all the way from 24 to the end of the chapter. There are two stories here that have some common things for us to learn. Jesus left that place. Did I finish that? Yeah, lifestyle issues from the heart. OK, um, Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left her daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There are some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they began and they begged him to place his hand on the man. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up up to heaven and with a deep sigh, said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. By the way, those of you who are pastors, I don't suggest you you try this. Verse 36, Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Okay, here's what's happening. Our view of cleanness actually transforms our relationships with the unclean. Your social life is an expression of your belief in the gospel. So first of all, Jesus associated with them. And he's showing his disciples this is what it means to understand That cleanness comes from your heart and not from your outer performance. All of your Americanisms now become irrelevant in the kingdom of God. Because it's not a matter of whether you have a representative democracy. It's not a matter of whether you have a rule of law. What matters is do you know the Lord Jesus Christ and does the guy next to you know the Lord Jesus Christ? No matter what his nationality, the kingdom slices through all of these categories of Jew and Gentile. Look here in this story what's happening. First of all, this is a Gentile, a dog. Secondly, it's a woman. Thirdly, it's not her son who's ill or demon possessed. It's her daughter. And fourthly, the daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit. It says the evil spirit in the text, but literally it's unclean. So we just talked about cleanness and the one who understands where cleanness comes from, not from your outer performance or whether you associate with the right people or whether you engage unclean spirits, but whether your heart is right with the Lord. When your heart is right with the Lord, now you're ready to go into a dirty world. Jesus is quickly showing us an immediate implication of getting this. Is that your associations will change. Your concern for the world will change. Your concern for Memphis will be very different when you get a clean heart. So he associates with them and then he preaches the kingdom to them. Now, this is a very strange way to say it. The bread is for the children, and it would be inappropriate to give the bread to the dogs. What in the world is he saying to this woman? He's saying, This is the kingdom. I have come, he says in Matthew 15, for the lost in Israel. That's my purpose. The Gentiles will be brought in later. That's my purpose too. But he's just clearly saying, I've come here, woman, for retreat. I came here to have some privacy. I came here in this home to be alone. Hint, hint. I didn't come over here to have ministry. And she comes back with this phenomenal response of humility and of faith in his power. And she says, yeah, but even the dogs catch the crumbs. I know Jesus was amazed because he didn't see that kind of faith in his own disciples. You have the contrast between the Pharisees and Jesus. The Pharisees wouldn't have touched. They wouldn't even walked entire. Jesus goes and blesses a woman who's been fooling around with demons, a Gentile. And the contrast is between this woman and his own disciples who are heart of heart. And she gets it. Just give me the crumbs. I trust in you. Whoo. And Jesus blesses her just as we must bless the world. For such a polite reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. And then we go into this latter story. And here's the point of this last story. Non-Christians sometimes understand this better than Christians. And the reason I say this, if you'll look at these parallels that I have written out in your text there, on your notes, you'll see that that there's an order from 631 to 737, the end of this chapter, that parallels the order in the next chapter we're going to study. And the way that we know the purpose of this story about the deaf mute is to look at the purpose of the healing story in chapter eight. And when we get to it, we'll see that the purpose of that story is to open the eyes so that they can see. And right after that, Peter confesses you're the Christ. So the healing story is a symbol of the eyes being opened so that Peter can confess the Lord. That's the purpose of this story. And we know it by the parallel here. So the purpose and, you know, you don't get this on your first reading of Mark's gospel. OK, I'm giving you some things that come from other people's study. But here you can clearly see what Mark is doing. He's leading us to this to see that, you know what? The power of Christ is so immense that non-Christians can often see it before Christians see it. Uh, the great Mahatma Gandhi, who studied Christianity but never became a Christian, he said there's something special about Christianity that Christians haven't discovered it. And he's quite right. And Jesus goes into the Decapolis. Remember, this is where the gathering demoniac was uh, exercised of his demons. Jesus comes back. People have heard about him. And this man come, is brought to him. And Jesus is showing when they get healed, they understand. And I'm telling you, people around the world from non-Christian backgrounds, when they get healed, they understand. And when they get the gospel, they understand. And sometimes we don't understand. I, I, I led a man to Christ one day. And he was so thrilled with what happened. And he was almost jumping around the room in my office. And he said to me, preacher, do the people in this church know about this. (laughs) And and I I was so stunned with the question. I thought, that's a great question. I said, you know, frankly, I don't know. (laughs) Because non-Christians get it sometimes better than Christians do. And if you grew up in a Christian home, sometimes you don't get it as well. And you have to cultivate getting it. What has really happened to you? What has really been done for you? This man gets it. Jesus goes to him and relates to his world. And we'll take one minute here. He goes to him. He listens to their pleas. He speaks their language. Why does he? Why does he stick his finger in the guy's ear? Because the guy can't hear. And Jesus is basically saying to him, "I'm going to heal your ear." Why does he spit and touch his tongue? I'm going to heal that tongue. He can't say that to the man. The man can't read lips. Jesus is using sign language. He's getting into the man's world. Then he looks up to heaven, which is to say, you know, your ear and your tongue. I'm going to get power from God to handle that for you. Jesus enters his world, speaks his language, and then speaks a word of healing to him. It's an amazing story. And he changes their lives completely because at this, the man's ears were opened. His tongue was loosened and he began to speak. Not like this. (laughs) He spoke plainly, which is a miracle. And Mark makes it clear this was an amazing ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this man got it. And here's how he got it. He cannot stop praising him. People were overwhelmed with amazement. They were saying he has done everything well. He even makes a death here. He even makes a mute speak. This man is amazing. Everything he does is wonderful, the people were saying. The Pharisees couldn't get it. They were committed to their own traditions, their own religious activity, their own idea of their own self-importance and their performance. They couldn't get it. But when people knew they needed help, they got help. And they knew that Jesus was Lord. That's the reason that cultivating the heart is so important. When you understand how desperately evil your heart is on its own. And then you see how incredibly powerful the Gospel is to forgive you and cleanse you. And you stay in conversation about it. What happens? You can't stop praising it. That's the way it is. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we were made to praise You. And as Your redeeming Gospel goes into our hearts and around the world, You raise up a people who cannot stop praising You. Lord, this is our holy task and privilege. And we would take it on again today as we give our hearts to You through Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you, gents.